Revelation 2, the loveless church. This is fascinating because last time we talked about the fact that here is John on the island of Patmos. He's an old man. And uh, imagine, imagine being the, one of the guys that ministered with Jesus, watched him, talked with him, listened to him. You know, I mean, sometimes I just try to envision what it must have been like for those 12 apostles, hearing our Lord's voice, seeing his tender, compassionate side, seeing when he got angry at the money changers, uh, seeing when he touched a leper, you know, which was verboten in those days. Um, and yet, here was John, and he was not used to seeing Christ in his glorified form. And so, I love this. I'm just going to go back to verse 10 in chapter 1. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I think by that he meant he was in his, not in the Spirit in the sense that he was separate from his body, but in a spiritual sense he was worshiping our Lord. I think that, I think that that's a, a fair understanding of what that means. There are other interpretations, but I, I'm more comfortable with that one. Um, and behind him, he hears this loud voice like a trumpet. I grew up, starting in fifth grade, playing the trumpet. I actually played the cornet. And um, it was a, it's a fascinating instrument. I loved it. Um, but imagine, here you are on an island of Patmos all by yourself, and behind <laughs> you, you hear this voice that is reminiscent, reminds you of a loud trumpet blast. And it says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now notice it says, as we touched on last time, it says the seven churches. Send it to the seven churches. Not send it to seven churches, but these specific churches. And of course, there's a lot of reasons why these were chosen, most likely. The fact that there were seven um, was probably uh, reminiscent or symbolic of the perfection of God, which is always seven. Um, but what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at the characteristics found in the seven churches. So before we actually get into the text, and by the way, when I do put up the videos, um, I also include these notes, so if you want to download the notes, they're there too. So, messages of Jesus to the churches. Every, everything he says about each of these seven churches, there's a message to the churches. And they involve, by the way, the visible church, not the invisible church. The invisible, what's the difference? Who knows the difference? You, you know the difference, I'm sure you do. The difference between the visible and the invisible church. Well, uh, Mount Olive is part of the visible church. The invisible church is made up of only those individuals who are authentic, saved Christians. That's it. So we know very well that uh, here, and Mark knows very well that there could be people here who are not Christians, who may think they are. And there may be, they're not. So they're not keeps them from being part of the invisible church, but they're certainly part of the visible church. So these messages go out to the visible church. And Jesus has something against five of them and nothing against two, which I find fascinating. 
but he has something against five of them. And he finds something good in six churches. And there's one church, which I know you can tell me what it is. There's absolutely nothing. Nothing. That's pretty sad. That is really sad. Four common things in all seven letters. And they are, every letter has a description of the Messiah taken from the description of Jesus, the glorified Son of God, Son of Man, in chapter 1. And by the way, can you remember offhand where another individual in the Old Testament was referred to as the Son of Man, another prophet? Okay, well, I'll let you think about that. <laughs> but anyway, this is, a, this is interesting that this particular phrase is used of the Son of God and of a prophet in the Old Testament. It's got a really unique flavor to it. All seven letters contain the words, I know, which is so fascinating. Is right? it Melchizedek? Pardon me? No, not Melchizedek. No, it wasn't Melchizedek. No. Oh, that's, that's pretty good. Good job, Jeff. So, who is it? He said Elijah. All seven, all seven letters contain the words "I know," which is Jesus saying, "What? I know. I know you. I know all about you. I know the good, the bad, the ugly, the beautiful. I know it all." And by the way, of course, he says that to us. I know. So there's nothing we can hide from him. Nothing. He that overcomes, followed by the promise. So in, in, in all seven letters, you, you read the words, he that overcomes, and there is a promise that follows, he that overcomes. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's an admonition to obedience. And how often did Jesus do that in his earthly ministry? He who has an ear, let him hear. How often did he do that? Yeah. So, the interpretation is interesting. And by the way, um, Mark and I probably don't completely agree on this, but that's okay. We still love each other in the Lord. No big deal. But there are just differences of opinion, and I'm sure you're familiar with um, what some of those differences are. I consider myself to be premillennialist, so I agree in the sense that these churches were seven real churches. That's, I think, indisputable. They were absolute seven <clears throat> real churches. There's no question about that. They weren't symbolically a church. They were real. They existed. Uh, they provide us a picture of what the church was like toward the end of the first century. And I think that that is really fascinating, because as we know, if you know history, and I'm sure you do, Toward the end of the first century, things got really hot and heated for Christians. Very, very bad. Very bad. I don't know how, obviously, God's grace, right? Yeah. But I don't know how those Christians managed to hold up under some of the things that they held up under. Especially when you have some of the later emperors, you know, Nero and all that stuff. It's pretty, pretty sad what they had to endure, uh, many of them. And so, of course, many of them fled to another area, which is, reminds me of why we got out of California. But um, 
not quite the same level, actually. But So it provides us a picture of what the church was like toward the end of the first century. And then the messages to these churches, by the way, I believe, are always perennial. Meaning, they're always now. They're always something that can affect. If you look at the, the, the world full of churches, I personally believe that there are many churches in various stages of these seven churches. But then overall, there's a bigger picture here, which we'll get into in just a few moments. And the message, they contain prophetic truth. All seven churches, the types of these churches, I believe, I look at it this way, that they exist throughout the church age. We know the church age started with what? Acts chapter 2. Since Acts chapter 2, when the church was born, the Holy Spirit was poured out to today. We're what? About 2,000 years later. That constitutes, all of it constitutes the church age. We are living in the church age. So all types, all seven church types exist throughout the church age. And I believe that there is, which we'll get into, one way for that I kind of look at this, and you may find it fascinating, you may agree with it, you may say, mm, I don't know, but whatever. One of the ways that I look at this is that each there's a period of time divided up into the church age from start to finish where each of these churches and the type of churches they were tends to headline that particular era, which is where we are today with the way the church exists today. And it's also headlined by a specific type of church. All seven churches, in my opinion, will continue to exist until the rapture. And, you know, it's funny because, you know, people have asked me, well, when do you think the rapture is going to happen? I have absolutely no clue. And whenever I hear of somebody who starts coming up with dates, it's like, no, you can't, you, you can't do that. We know what happened with, what was his name? Camping? Yeah, Harold Camping. Harold Camping, you remember him? Okay, you don't remember him. He had predicted, this was a few years ago, he predicted, this is the date when the Lord's coming. And his followers, what did they do? His followers quit their jobs, they got sandwich uh, boards on, they went out and started handing, you know. And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's good, but they didn't have to quit their jobs to do that. They could have been doing that all along. Well, the day came and went, and it didn't happen. And so Harold Camping basically said, ah, I knew, he was an engineer, I made a mistake, I have to go back, and he went back and he redid the math. And he goes, okay, here's the real date. So that date, mm -hmm. of course, came and went. And I mean, then he bought billboards. That, pardon me? I was saying he bought billboards and everything. He did. I mean, they were up in California, October something. Cool. You know, October I mean, 21st or something. Yeah, yeah something yeah, like that. Yeah, because he was based in California. And then shortly after that happened and didn't happen, then I think he had a stroke. And um, the Lord actually took him home not long after that. And it's like... Harold, three strikes, man, two strikes. Man. All seven types will continue to exist until the rapture. And for me, I don't focus on this so much. It's biblical prophecy. It's biblical truth as far as I'm concerned. But as I was talking to Mark, I said, you know, Mark, I said, I look at it this way. I could die tonight in my sleep. I'll still go in the rapture. That's the way Paul explains it. But I don't 
wait with bated breath for this. I try to keep abreast of what's happening in the world, which is extremely difficult today because there's so much happening. It is just, it's impossible to keep track of it. It really is. But I know this is going to happen one day, and whether I'm still alive or dead, I'll still be in it. So, uh, in the meantime, what am I supposed to do? Wait, watch, and work, right? Be on guard. Be on guard. Be on guard. Yeah. So we got a historical prophetic interpretation of the churches. While all seven types of churches always exist, I believe, and it makes sense to me, and again, this may not gel with you, and that's okay. Um, one type dominates a particular era of church history. And in a, in a bit, I'm going to show you why I come to that conclusion. And again, this is not... If you don't agree, if you find a difficulty with it, that's okay. This is a very small part of what the rest of Revelation is all about. Can you give us an example or will you do that later? I will give you an example, absolutely. Yeah, we're going we're gonna to break this down. All right, these letters then could present, and I want to emphasize the word could, present a prophetic picture of seven historical periods in which the visible truth will develop. You know, what's really fascinating to me is if you look at rabbis of old, they, they were called sages, Jewish rabbis. They always view this world from scriptures as having two ages. That's it. The age we live in now and the age of the Messiah when he comes. And of course, Jesus came. He was rejected, but he's coming again. We were listening to a, a prophecy video by John Haller. I don't know if you've heard of him. Anybody? John Haller? Okay. And it was an interesting thing because he was talking about all the stuff that's going on in the world today. H-A-L-L-E-R is his name, John. And um, it was just absolutely fascinating because there's just so much going on in the world that it really is hard to catalog all of it. And you, because we can't keep track of everything, when you do see a video that's an hour and a half long and he just kind of goes through and talks about everything that's happening, specifically in the Middle East, yeah. with Turkey rising and becoming a very, very dominant player, which only happened in the last few years, and you sit there and you realize, wow, the northern invasion of Ezekiel 38 and 39 might be not that far away. You know, it's just absolutely fascinating. We'll be going over that too, not tonight, but in another one. So these letters could present a prophetic picture of seven historical periods in which the visible church will develop through to the end. And what's really interesting is if you look at um, some major denominations today, and I won't necessarily name them, but if you look at some major denominations today that have actually fallen away, you can see the cycle of when they began. And then, well, let's just call, okay, I'll mention Lutheranism. Here was a church denomination that came directly from the efforts of who? Martin Luther of the Reformation, right? When it began, he was on fire for truth you know, and, and he was pushing back against the errors he saw in Roman Catholicism. Well, if you look at Lutheranism today, and my mother was born and baptized into Lutheranism, but she left it way later in life. And you look at Lutheranism today, and you can see this arc that took place. And it happens with many denominations. Bible school I went to when I got my bachelor's in Bible. I went to Philadelphia College of Bible in Center City, Philadelphia. It was founded in part by C.I. Schofield. And I went there because I thought, this is, yeah, yeah. This is the guy. <laughs> this is the guy. This is, 
good teaching, you know, this is right on. Well, now it is called Cairn University. And when they changed the name, I thought, they're going to name themselves after a dog? It just didn't make sense to me. Well, they have become so far removed from their origins that they don't, when I was there, there was this case, a, a glass case where um, some of Schofield's original writings were. <clears throat> in his original notes. Not to be worshipped, but just, this is the stuff. You know, this is the, where the college is built on. Well, now that, it's nowhere to be found. Nothing, nothing about him is even mentioned. It, nothing. And so that stuff happens over and over again. The reason I say that is because it seems like it is a natural arc. A natural arc of many denominations. Many institutions. Many I mean, look at Princeton, look at Harvard. Okay. These guys, these colleges, these universities were bastions of conservatism and biblical thought. Yeah. And now where are they? Well, they've been attacked so badly by Satan that they just, he just eroded it. And so I think that's what's happening. That's what happened with these churches. And I think that's why we constantly see this same kind of arc in many denominations today, many biblical institutions today. And I, I think overall, we are in a place in society today where we are very much, unfortunately, like one of the churches that we're going to discuss here briefly. So the letters are being written to seven churches, representative of the whole. And you can look at it several ways. Each church mentioned has its own arc, its own trajectory. Or you can look at it and say, every church can have that same arc and trajectory. Um, if it weren't for Mark here and some of the other, we have a few of the leaders in this church, the deacons, etc., where would this church be? Where would this church be? I mean, when Sylvia and I, we just became members this morning, and when Sylvia and I were looking for a church, we were like, are we going to find one? Yeah. Where are we going to find one? We they're on every corner, one. but... Yeah, they're all over the place, but where are we going to find one that is biblically based, where people love each other, where people really want to win people for the gospel? Where are we going to find that? And we were unfortunately not seeing it as much as we liked in the church we were attending, so after four years of traveling back and forth, we thought, well, we can't keep doing this. We want to be in our own community of people with the church there in that community. And, and I believe the Lord directed us here, and we're very grateful for it. But it's, you know, because we see that here at this church. Yeah. We see it. Well, thanks and, to Travis and Melanie. <laughs> yeah, and we've known Travis and Melanie for quite some time. So the letters are being written to seven churches representative of the whole church. And these churches were likely chosen, these are only possible reasons they were chosen, the particular meaning of their names, which is really interesting, as we'll get into, and as Mark got into before, and I don't want to go over the same ground that he went over. That's why we're doing it this way. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on each church and breaking it down. The situation in that particular local church, I believe, is also characteristic of a future period in church history. So church history has been here for 2,000 years. If you break it down, which we will, break it down into seven sections. It's very interesting the way it comes up. And I didn't come up with this. I wish I could say I did, but I didn't come up with this. People like Harry Ironsides and other scholars came up with the possibility that maybe this means this. What do you think? And they talked about it, and they, they did more biblical research and, and felt like it kind of fit. 
So certain statements made to specific churches cannot be true of just that local church situation. We'll get into that too. It, it really applies to a much greater audience. And so it's got to have a far wider meaning. So the basic outline of the letters is pretty fascinating here. There's a destination that is a description of Jesus, commendation, when necessary, or when needed, and condemnation, also when needed, exhortation, promise. So those are the... Uh, Those are the basic outlines, and not all seven letters have all points or in that order, but the basic structure still remains. Um, if you look at chapter 2, the very first church there, in my New King James Version here, the heading says Loveless Church, yeah. and that's the church at Ephesus. Now, Sylvia and I, by the way, are watching a seven-disc set. It's a DVD set, um, and what's fascinating is it starts out in the classroom, is a cultural anthropologist Christian who's teaching these classes, and then he goes out to each of these churches physically, the remnants, the remains, and he talks about it. So it makes it kind of come alive. And he went to Ephesus, and it's very fascinating that there's literally nothing left. Yeah. Of course there's nothing left of all these churches because they're all ruins. But what's fascinating is, is that in some cases there's, there's absolutely nothing left. Nothing left. Except, quite possibly, in one case, it was a plaque. It's just absolutely fascinating. Alright, so let's look at the Church of Ephesus. And this is what, um, if we want to start breaking it down according to um, maybe a heading for that particular church, this might be called the Apostolic Church, and it went from A.D. 30 to A.D. 100. And it's in Revelation 2, 1 through 7. So the first seven chapters, the first seven verses, excuse me, of chapter 2. And I love how it ends... Uh, I love this. These things says he who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. And we were introduced to that language in chapter 1 last week. It goes, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have labored for my name's sake, and have not become weary. That's all good stuff. What I find fascinating is, today we have a movement within Christendom, the visible church, that's called NAR, New Apostolic Reformation. And uh, even the Charismatics um, and the Pentecostals reject this group. And what they do is, they believe that, this was basically started by C. Peter Wagner, and basically what these people believe is that they are actually apostles, living apostles of today. And they have the authority of the original 12 apostles. Not only that, but within NAR, New Apostolic Reformation, there are people who say that they're prophets. They have authority of those prophets. So what's fascinating is you can imagine is when these people speak, they believe they're speaking with apostolic authority or they believe they're speaking with prophetic authority and that they should be listened to. And unfortunately, many, many people are listening to that. But the same thing was happening. Same thing was happening during the time of the church at Ephesus. 
there were people that were saying, hey, I'm an apostle. I'm an apostle. You should listen to me. And because of that, there were a lot of people who started listening to them. As a matter of fact, it's really interesting. There's a lot of historical evidence that says the guy in, uh, I think it's Simon Magnus of Acts, who when he went to Peter and said, give me this gift. Yeah. I'll pay you for this gift. And he goes, may your money perish with you. Well, there's interesting extant extra evidence that basically says this guy, Simon Magus, went actually to Rome. And he claimed to be the Apostle Peter, Simon Peter. And guess what he started? What eventually became the Roman Catholic Church. I mean, he, he was the guy who goes, you know, I'm the rock. So here's this guy pretending to be Simon Peter, and from that, we have, it's just fascinating to me. So back in Ephesus, the loveless church, they were putting up with and calling them out, these liars who were saying they were apostles. So Jesus said, you've done all that right, and he goes, nevertheless, I have this against you. You've left your first love. You know, that can happen to anybody. Anybody. There, were, there was one time in, in California when I was overwhelmed by a problem. And I remember, I remember just having to, I was just overwhelmed. And we were at dinner, and I just had to leave the dinner table, and I went up to my office, and I just said, Lord, I am sorry. And I just remember saying I'm sorry for about 10 minutes. Not that he didn't forgive me the first time. But it was just kind of overwhelming emotion. And I had realized that I had unfortunately left my first love and put something else in its place and I had to rectify that. That can happen to any of us at any time in life. So the church at Ephesus lost their first love. They were busy. They were fundamentalists. They had the truth. They knew what truth was. They could defend the truth. But they were cold. They did not have the love that Jesus has for all people, including those who are lost. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. And so, again, that can happen. We've left churches because of that. Maybe you have too. You, you don't realize it at first. You're like a frog in a pot of water that's starting to boil. You just don't realize, or I should say starts to freeze. You just don't realize that what's going on. And then all of a sudden you're like, what changed? What happened? We need, to, we need to do something. Maybe we need to leave. You don't leave capriciously because, well, I'm offended that they didn't choose my color for the rug. Doing the remake on this. No, you, you leave because of really important things like they're not... They may be aligned with truth, but they're dead. They're doing this, and they should be doing that. Destination Ephesus, which means desired. Ephesus was a, it was a place you wanted to live. It had so much to offer people. And this can also happen in our lives when we get so comfortable with things, right? You don't see what we need. And it may represent the Apostolic Church from A.D. 30 to A.D. 100. And it's about the time of the death of John. Um, it, Revelation was probably written, well, there's differences of opinion, but he probably passed away 
right around shortly after 95, between 95 and 100, right around there. It's so hard to know. He who holds the seven stars in his right hand commended for condemning false teachers, commended for hating the work of the Nicolaitans. Does anybody remember what the Nicolaitans were? It was a, there was a guy named Nicholas who was really specific about what you should do if you're a Christian. You've got to live this way. You've got to do that. Oh, you need to avoid that type of food. You've got to do this. And, and people get caught up into this whole idea of the do's and don'ts, the rules and the regulations that they forget <coughs> about love. They forget about what Jesus wants us to do. And so, it's also like sexual, encourage sexual immorality. Yes, so. absolutely. Yeah, that, yeah, yeah, that's always there too. As a matter of fact, uh, when we get into another church, when we talk about Jezebel, we'll see even more of that. Uh, condemned for losing their first love. That was a big one. Mm-hmm. It's a big one. And then urged to remember their first love. Repent, turn back to that first love. Failure will result in the removal of their candlestick or their witness. And what does that mean, by the way? Because he says in verse 5, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. What is, what is Christ saying? You know what? I'm taking your salvation away. Is that what he's saying? No. 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 You cannot lose your salvation. So what is, what is he saying? He's, he's removing their witness, their, exactly. their ability to, to grow. Yep. They're, blessed. They're, they're, they're in the place of blessing, which allows them to grow, to be fruitful, to be good witnesses for Christ. If you keep going down this road... You won't have that ability anymore. And Christ is basically saying, I'm turning the lights out. Right. Yeah, that's a yeah. good way to put it. Yeah, and you know what's really interesting? We know from um, Acts and from Second, First and Second Corinthians, when Paul says, look, this, you, you people are doing this wrong. You're doing it wrong. And this is why some of you are falling asleep, which always, when he's talking about believers, always means death. You're dying because you're approaching the Lord's Supper with abandon. Because you're you're looking at it like, well, I'm 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 hungry. I'm I'm pigging out here. I'm doing this. And Paul says you can't do that. You're you're you know you're you're harming yourself because that's why some of you are sick. So really, what's happening here? What's the end result of this? You know, take away the place of blessing. I'm taking you out of that. And then what's what's the final step? I'll just take you home. If you're not going to be obedient to me, if you're causing yourself more harm than good, then I'm just taking you out of this life. And that way, you can't do that anymore. If you can't do it on your own, I'll do it. I'll take care of it. So the failure is going to result in the removal of their candlestick or their witness. And the promised privilege of eating of the fruit of the tree of life. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. He goes, he who has an ear, let him hear in verse 7 what the Spirit says to the churches, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. You know what's fascinating to me, just real briefly here, I look at Garden of Eden, um, the new heavens and new earth. Everything that happens between those two is a huge parenthesis. 
what God created, He meant to live as in the Garden of Eden forever. That's what He meant. We're going to eventually get to that. But because of our sin, our stupidity, our selfishness, we are now living in this. But God's grace reaches down and pulls us out and says, I'm, I'm still prepared. I've got a place I'm preparing for you right here. And when you get there, there will be that tree of life that I originally put in the Garden of Eden that you'll be able to eat from. It's going to have 12 fruit every month. You can eat your fill. That's exciting. I mean, that really is exciting. So we will be living in a perfected Garden of Eden where there will never be a serpent who's taken over by Satan. There will never be anything like that. It will be perfection. I, I, it's hard for me to picture. I, I'm sure it's hard for you to picture that there will never be a temptation to sin in thought, word, or deed. Never. Man. So, the promised privilege of eating the fruit of the tree of life to him who overcomes. Alright, so the church of Smyrna may represent the church of Roma persecution from A.D. 100 to 313. Now, of course, this church didn't exist then. What I'm saying is that church could represent this period of time. And that's Revelation 2, 8 through 11, the persecuted church. The angel of the church of Smyrna, right. And the angel, by the way, of course, there's a difference of opinion on what that could possibly mean. It could mean the, um, the pastor of that church. It could mean an actual angel who oversees and, and works. I mean, we see that in Scripture from time to time. We see that big time in Daniel. Yeah. So the church of Smyrna, I know your poverty, but you're rich. I know your poverty, but you're rich. Persecuted. They are among the synagogue of Satan. It's fascinating. They're among the synagogue of Satan. So, yet they were, they were um, poor, but God says, you're rich. You're rich. You know, I think of people like George Soros, Klaus Schwab, the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds. They think they have everything. And as far as this life is concerned, they do have everything. Mark Zuckerberg, I believe he lost $251 billion this past week. He's not a pauper still. It's not going to affect his lifestyle one bit. Somebody said instead of buying 50 Teslas, they'll just buy 40. It doesn't affect him. $251 billion. Amazon gained $251 billion just last week. These people are so rich, they have no idea what to do with their money. They can buy, and they just don't know. But what don't they have, of course, is what we have, salvation. We have Christ. So they don't have that. So this um, church, which means myrrh, Myrrh is a sweet-smelling spice, you remember, from the yeah. birth of Christ. Represents the realm of persecution resulting in death, which is also fascinating here, <coughs> because often myrrh, where else was, did we see, not just with the birth of Christ, but where else was myrrh used? Well, yeah. 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 To wrap him in his grave clothes, to present him, to prepare him for 
the burial. So it represents persecution resulting in death. Myrrh is, and it's interesting because some commentators believe that even though myrrh was given to him at his birth, it still represented his all day of death. Yeah. And, and that's, to me, it's like... Yeah, it was almost prop prophetic. Oh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. 100%. Yes. So he is the first and the last. He is commended for having patience, not he. The church is commended for having patience in <coughs> suffering. You know, Mark was talking, or maybe that was in this morning's Sunday school, talking about Joseph and him being falsely accused. And, uh, and he was right about it. I agree 100% that if Potiphar wanted to, he could have had him executed. That's true. No problem. He was just a slave. But God intervened, and here he was in prison. And also, Potiphar oversaw that prison, too. So I thought that was interesting. That was part of his job. But the whole idea here is that I can't imagine how Joseph, you know, he got his patience. It developed. It developed. So these people in this church, they were suffering. Our brothers and sisters throughout the world are suffering right now. Yes. You know, we're here in America, and we can sit here and go, man, oh man, these mandates are driving me crazy. I don't want to wear a mask at that store, blah, 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 blah. But you know, there are some, what, what other Christian brothers and sisters are having to put up with, and, and God's with them. They're there for a reason. But man, yeah. So they're commended for enduring the blasphemy of those who claim to be Jews, but are of the synagogue of Satan. And um, that probably has um, reference to a, the synagogue that was there at the time of Jewish people who hated Christians. And because of that, Satan was using the people in this synagogue to attack the Christians. I mean, we know what happened to Paul. He was literally chased around Asia Minor from one place to another. Thank you. Urge not to fear. This is interesting, what they are about to suffer. And it's specific to this church, what they're about to suffer. And of course, if we look at this and we go, well, um, this church may have application to the Roman church of persecution during that time, um, well, we know how bad it got during the Middle Ages. We know how bad it got. With the Inquisitions and everything else. Warns them that they're about to suffer persecution for a period of 10 days. This actually could probably be a period of literally 10 days, not 10 periods of time. The thing about Revelation is often when a specific number is used, it's a specific meaning behind it. It's a specific meaning behind it. And that ties into what I said last week about when we understand Scripture, when we interpret it, we should take it in its most plain and ordinary sense, just like when we have a conversation with somebody else. And if that person we're talking to or we use a colloquialism or a figure of speech, it still only has one meaning, as I used last week. So they're exhorted to not fear death. You know, we do, don't we? We fear death. I don't really fear the 
death as a door that I'm going to walk through to get into eternity? I fear what? The pain <laughs> yeah. that may be associated with going through that door. That's what Mark I'm not said looking too. forward to that at all. And so hopefully it won't be horrendous when I get there. My sister was in a coma for a week because of a she had Hashimoto's and uh, what else did she have? She had, well, she had a massive heart attack. Well, she had a massive heart attack, but she had a couple of illnesses that were the Hashimoto's and the uh, celiac disease. And she, uh, she was overweight, unfortunately, but she just had a major, major heart attack. And she died on the way to the hospital, I think, twice. She flatlined, they got her back, and she was in a coma for a week. And yeah, it was really interesting. But um, she's with the Lord, and so that's good. But the week that previous to it was, I'm sure, not easy on her. Wasn't easy on anybody else who was alive either. They will not die a second time. There you go. Saint can do whatever he wants to us, right? This is an assurance that the people in the Old Testament did not have. They really did not have. They, it was kind of unknown to them. They weren't really sure. Um, I think when Jesus was given the example of um, Lazarus in the bosom of Abraham in the New Testament, that wasn't a story he was telling. What he was relating was a real situation that hell existed as it exists today and was separated by a huge gulf and you had the people who were destined for the lake of fire on one side and the people who were destined for, for eternal um, heaven with Christ on the other side. But the reason they were there, right, was because Jesus had not yet died and was not yet resurrected and had not yet ascended and took prisoners in his train. So that's why they were on that. It was not a story. Lazarus, the bosom of Abraham was not a story. It was a true story. It was, a, it was what Christ knew to be fact. They will not die a second time. All right, so the Church of Pergamum. Um, I'll go back to, yeah, there you go. AD 330, 13 to 600, the age of Constantine. We're familiar with, with this and him. And what happened specifically during the church, during, with the church during that time? What happened? It got legitimacy. It got legitimacy so much so that it became married to the state, right? And then all of a sudden the persecution stopped. Boom! Overnight. And because of that, unfortunately, what happens often with Christians? We're, we're, it happens. We get complacent. We become full. We don't need anything. We're good. Life is great. No persecution. It's the persecution, not that I want it, that often keeps us going back to the Lord. And when these situations occur, then we find that we don't need to go to the Lord just as much. Destination. Pergamum means thoroughly married. The church was married to the estate. It became to the state. That it became the official religion of Rome. You know, like you said at the beginning, the idea was this: this is great. You know that that you you would be able to have your faith and right. not be persecuted against. Right. right. But as you can see, that arc to then becoming complacent just it led happened. to okay. the downfall. Yeah. And it results in spiritual fornication and idolatry. And we've got that going on today, big time. You know as well as I do. Thank 
God, literally, for people like Mark, who so loved the Lord and wanted to be so uh, you know, enamored with his word and want to preach his word. In and out of season. <laughs> in and out of season, whether people are comfortable with it or not. You know? Anything other than the truth is a lie. Yeah, yeah. And how many churches do we know around here that don't do that? I'll say that. I'll say it that way. So it results always in spiritual fornication and idolatry or spiritual adultery is what it amounts to. Because we just become complacent. Satan's throne is. That's where his throne was. The temple of Esculapius, Esculapius, excuse me, serpent son. There was this temple there in Pergamum. They're trying to get it back. Are they? It's in Germany. Really? Yeah. Oh, they moved it. Is that right? The German archaeologists ah. removed it and uh, it was, uh, Hitler used it and, and, and you know, you've seen the the Grand Plaza. Oh yeah. 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 Oh Basically, yeah. Basically, the center of that was Satan's throne. And I—that's in a museum, is it? It is. Okay, I've it's seen in pictures. In the museum in Berlin. Okay. But uh, Erdogan, he wants it. He wants it back. Uh, he wants everything. <laughs> He's a guy to keep an eye on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he wants everything. Yeah. I was uh, watching well, the video. You were talking about today. the rise of Turkey. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is all part of it. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. They're gonna—they're major players in the end here. Mm -hmm. And it's fascinating because Turkey, within the last few years, has basically said, "Well, our land may end here at the Mediterranean, but see all this blue water out there? That's Turkey's too. So you can't make—you can't pass through there with a gas pipeline, Israel, unless you pay us big bucks. So it's really fascinating. I mean, that goes against maritime laws and everything, but that doesn't matter because it's—it's Erdogan." But anyway, Satan's throne is the temple of that thing. has the sharp two-edged sword. Whenever we see this in the Bible, the sharp two-edged sword, it's, it's a type of judgment. Because isn't God's word able to judge us? Not negatively, not in the sense that we're going to lose our salvation, but judge us down to the soul and the spirit, the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit. For what? So that we will know what we need to get rid of out of our lives. And so Jesus is basically saying that... These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword, verse 13, I know your works, where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith, even in the days in which Antipas was my faithful martyr, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. And the way some of these people die is horrendous. You ever want to know, just pick up Fox's Book of Martyrs. Yeah. But I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling. What was the stumbling block before the children of Israel? What did Balaam? What did Balaam say to the king? He goes, you know what? If you take Israel on with your armies, you're not going to win. But I have a way. I know how you can do it. What was his way? Remember, he said, "Look, all you have to do is start intermarrying, mm -hmm. and then you'll destroy them for a little." It's kind of what's happening to the United States in a different way. Commended for not denying the faith. That's good. That's very good. Uh, con condemned for allowing something to the teaching of Balaam. And that's in Numbers 22 to 24 if you want to go and check that out sometime. So it was encouragement of corruption by intermarriage. So they were, he was saying, look, you marry, have your people marry them. And then all of a sudden, they'll start worshiping your idols, your gods. They'll forget all about the God of Israel. And that's what happened. 
Condemned for permitting the teachings again of the Nicolaitans. They're there again. Exhorted to repent, clean up the church, or be judged. You know, if God is going to judge the nation of Israel that he has, and they're still under judgment, and they will be under judgment because the tribulation is mainly about Israel, not the church. It's about Israel, the time of Jacob's trouble. So if God is going to judge the nation of Israel, isn't he also going to judge Christians when we become foolish and immoral and adulterous spiritually? Or churches that... And how does he do that? Romans 1 is a beautiful... I won't say beautiful. It's an interesting way of describing the downfall of human, human society. It's just a natural progression when God says, fine, here you go. You want that? Go for it. And that's exactly what's happening. And that's what's happening in the world today, Romans 1. Oh, yeah. In my opinion. One who overcomes will be given manna, white stone, given a new name. The white stone in Pergamum was interesting because it was a form of voting. Um, you would either use the black stone, negative, no, nay, or the white stone, yes. Well, Christ wanted to give the people in this church a white stone. But in order to get the white stone, they had to clean up their act, they had to repent, they had to do what they needed to do. All right. Oh, I'm kind of trying to go a little bit faster. I'd like to get done with this tonight if I could, if that's okay. Is that okay? Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Thank you, sir. Everybody okay? <laughs> You're all right with it, then. <laughs> Church of the Dark Ages, Thyatira. It's roughly A.D. 600 to 1517, Revelation 2, 18 through 29. The Church of Thyatira, love, faith, service, and patient endurance, and Jezebel. And you know Jezebel from the Old Testament. She was unbelievably wicked, married to who? Ahab. Ahab. Remember King Ahab? Yeah. I want that land. I want that land. <laughs> he won't give it to me. And what did Jezebel do? You're the king. Just, just go have a nap. Mommy will take care of it. I will deal with this. So she did. She did. She used Israel's law against the guy who would not sell the land to Ahab. They're making up, up a lie. Making up a lie. And there were two witnesses to corroborate that lie, so we know what happened. He was taken out and executed. And all of a sudden, Ahab gets the land. Jezebel. Not only did Jezebel do that, but Jezebel opened the palace doors for whom? The prophets of Baal. 450 of them, roughly, were invited into the palace. Invited into the palace to live there, to worship there. This is God's house. Oh, the but, temple. And it was the temple. And so Jezebel invited. I mean, it's amazing to me. So here's the church of Thyatira, who was love. They were loving. They were faithful. They were service-oriented. They, they endured suffering patiently. But they also had Jezebel, and they were under a spell because of Jezebel. <clears throat> uh, These things say the Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire and his feet of fine brass. I know your works, love, service, and faith, and your patience. And as for your works, the last are more than the first. Wow. 
what a commendation. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you because you allowed that woman, Jezebel, and her name was probably not Jezebel, but it's a throwback, of course, because she was the same type of person that the Jezebel in the Old Testament was, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. And of course, we are very familiar with the fact that many religious systems way back when um, involved temple prostitutes and that kind of a thing. And so these people, I guess, in that church didn't want to offend, so they put up with it instead of calling it out. It means perpetual sacrifice. The Roman Catholic doctrine of continual sacrifice through the Mass. Um, there are so many things, unfortunately, that the Catholic Church, and, and I'm not going to condemn the Catholic Church. I know Catholics whom I believe to be, I don't know their hearts, obviously, but they seem to know. Just because you're Catholic doesn't mean that... That's like saying just because you're a Baptist, you're automatically a Christian. That's not the case. Right. So we know that. But as far as the system of Catholicism, I have great concerns with it. And there's this continual sacrifice through the Mass, because why? Transubstantiation. The wafer becomes the flesh of Christ. So it's a continual sacrifice. It's not once for all. It's continual. Mm -hmm. Son of God, who has eyes like flame of fire, that, of course, is judgment. Commended for their works of love, faith, ministry, and patience. Characterized by their good works. Condemned for tolerating Jezebel. It was a Phoenician name, and Phoenicians had disappeared by this time as an ethnic entity. It was not located in Phoenicia, but in Asia Minor. So obviously Jesus is borrowing this name from the woman in the Old Testament because it was the same type of sin, the same type of problem but it represents a religious entity. Well, I was say, probably not a real woman. Probably not a real woman. No, real, re no. Probably not, what I mean is, this is probably not a specific woman by the name, with the name of Jezebel. But very well could have been a real woman or a group of women. Wait, wait, I am. Go ahead. It looks like he's talking about a specific person. Well, I think, yeah, I think you're right. But she, her name was probably not yeah, Jezebel. Yeah, probably not Jezebel. Yeah. yeah. So I should probably correct that. It probably was a real woman, but not with the name Jezebel. That makes sense? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Represents a religious entity. And, you know, we have that going on today, though, with both women and men who stand up and, and they lead people astray by what they say, what they preach, what they do. So destination, Thyatira means perpetual sacrifice. Did I already do this one? Jezebel of the Old Testament introduced pagan religion. We went through that. And there's the reference if you care to write that down and look that up later. Surpassed all previous sins of idolatry in the northern kingdom. She led the entire kingdom astray. I mean, it's just unbelievable what she did. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Is there any reason that God said that she'll be killed and the dogs will eat her? Idolatry began with Jeroboam I, corrupted true religion. And by the way, why do you think these kings did that in the Old Testament? They introduced idolatry in some form. Any ideas? Did they want anyone what? greater than them? I mean, that's... Yeah, what was that? Yeah. What was it, David? 
their own self-importance. Yeah, self-importance. God is above them, and they didn't want that. Yeah, and I think also they wanted to keep people happy who they they knew would probably be more in, inclusive with the idolatry than with the true worship of God the Father, which also tells us about them because they themselves were not concerned about worshiping only the true God. They were probably idolaters themselves. So it, it gave a blanket, go ahead, acceptance of it. Jezebel introduced a whole new God and system for worship. Involved sexual immorality. I can't even imagine what went on in the palace or the temple. And this is unfortunate because not that there was sexual immorality necessarily in the Roman Catholic Church, but the elevation of Mary, the mother of God, that kind of thing. It's a form of idolatry. So during the Dark Ages, the Roman Catholic Church was introduced. Justification by works, not grace through faith. And that's the biggest issue that Luther had with it. Yeah. And the biggest issue that we have with it. It's, it's, it's funny. Um, and the sacraments. And the sacraments. My wife was born and raised Catholic. She became a true believer before she and I met. And uh, it's interesting, though, because we went to a number of Catholic funerals for relatives. And... I, wasn't, I never paid that much attention to Roman Catholicism, but at these funerals, there was always, they didn't use the word, but it was always indulgences. They were still talking about the fact that you could pray this person out of purgatory sooner. You could give to the church in their name and get them out of purgatory. It's like, Luther, yeah. I thought Luther had a big problem with this, and, but nothing changed. Nothing changed. It's amazing. Baptismal regeneration, a person can actually be saved, according to them, by baptism. So you can be baptized for a dead person, and, and it'll affect their life in purgatory. The Mormons actually do the same thing, baptism for the dead. Worship of images, icons, images, statues, celibacy, forbidding to marry. All of this kind of stuff was very much alive in some form in Thyatira. Confessionalism, sins confessed priest declares absolution. A lot of times in the ancient, uh, ancient religious ceremonies, people would go to priests and confess their sins or the, the heads of the temple. Um, and then they would find absolution in the temple prostitutes. It was just weird. We look at it and we go, how could anyone take that seriously? But they did. They did. It was so much ingrained in their life. I mean, and this really, this is the church of the dark ages. If you right. really just look at it, it's... And then transubstantiation, as we talked about. By the way, this, this actually goes back to ancient Egypt. Ancient Egypt, also, this is the same thing. This is what Islam believes. That you will all get to heaven eventually, but how much you spend in, they don't call it purgatory in Islam or in, or in ancient Egypt, but how, how long you spend in a terrible place, working off your sins, is determined by how sinful you were in this life. And we're familiar with that stuff. Oh, and Mariolatry. Worship of the... I've heard many... I've heard Catholics call her the mother of God. Oh, yeah. Drives me crazy. It's in all the prayers. All right. I'm going to skip through this a little bit. Um, 22. Let's look at verse 22 real quick. Sorry. Indeed, I will cast her onto a sickbed. Oh, thank you. 
Indeed, I'll cast her into a sickbed and those who commit adultery with her into the great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. So Jesus is actually saying, okay, this woman right here, this person who's causing all of this problem, who doesn't, who is not named Jezebel but has some other name, this is what I'm going to do to her. And everybody who follows her, so this speaks to our day. Everybody who follows her is going to get tossed into the great tribulation coming. Unless they repent of their disease, their deeds. And obviously that means more than just repent, become true Christian. Because that's what saves us from going into the great tribulation. I'll kill her children with death and all the churches that shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give each of you according to your works. It's obviously this part, the Catholic Church part, does not refer to a real woman. Because obviously she won't be alive when the Great Tribulation starts. But it's Christ is looking at this person and looking into the future as well. And saying, you go down this road, then this is where you'll go. <clears throat> and obviously if you're alive when the Tribulation starts. Exhorted to hold fast to that which is pure, who are not already a part of Satan's counterfeit. And during the Dark Ages, the counterfeit was, and unfortunately still is, Roman Catholicism among other things. Promised to have a part of the Messianic Kingdom and will have a morning star that refers to Jesus himself. And the Church of Sardis is alive but dead. Stop sleeping. Wake up. I'm sorry, I don't want to keep you this late. I have just one question. Yes, uh, sir. When you were talking about the uh, and those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from her evil deeds. And then it goes on to say and you didn't mention this part, um, I'm not sure I got it right in my mind, but I will strike her children dead. That's... Oh, okay. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give each one of you according to your works. I think what he's simply saying there is those people who follow down that same path mm -hmm. will be heading toward eternal destruction. Okay. That's, that's the way I take that. Okay. Anybody see anything different there? No? Okay. Maybe? All right. Um, maybe we should stop there and pick up the next... Yeah, I think we should. Let's stop here. We'll pick up Sardis and then uh, Philadelphia and Laodicea next time and then get into the rest of it, if that's okay? Yeah. Okay. All right. Sylvia, so you can turn those off then, if you okay. wouldn't mind. Any questions or comments? Next time, as I mentioned...